Welcome to This is for the CV, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. This is a podcast by Anthony and Rebecca, two professors in communication and political science, chatting about politics, pop culture, and the things in between. This month, we are joined by Dr. Michael Burns. He is a communication professor at Texas State University. He shares with us about being a professional agitator, his collaborative problem-solving research program, CoSearch, covering the Olympics, the importance of general education courses and rural education, and of course, throwing a birthday party for the pap smear. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Rebecca. And hello, Dr. Michael Burns. Hi, everybody. Thank you for being with us today. I'm excited to be here. Coming in from San Marvelous, Texas. So yes, yes. Yeah, you and Anthony have some history. Should we start with how y'all know each other? Oh my sure. Gosh. I'll let Anthony <laughs> describe that. Let's see how Anthony describes that. No pressure. Okay. Okay. My first, my first interaction with Dr. Burns. I'm coming in to Texas State, feeling like king of the world. I got a, I got a, <laughs> I got a scholarship. I'm a teaching aide, and we have this like retreat, and. I've never been to Texas State outside of being advised. I walk in Centennial Hall, I go to this room and people are sitting around, people are mulling. There's this guy in like a, a shirt and a nice tie, might even been a bow tie. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I see the students out here. We're trying to, right? He's chilling, everything's chilling. And then boom, as soon as it starts, he stands up, I'm Dr. Michael Burns. And then I'm like, okay, wait, so he's running this thing, cool. And then, and then he's dropping stuff like, yeah, when I was working at NBC and I'm like, what, what, what? Who's working at NBC? Wait, okay, wait, you're here now. You're working at MC, NBC doing Olympic stuff. Wait, you got your PhD. Wait, how old are you? Wait. And then, and so that, that's all that, that was like the first iteration. And then it just flowed from, from there for like the next two years. Best boss I ever had. That's not even up for discussion. And mm. Yeah, he's, he's really is a force of nature, but that's what I remember, like that initial iteration. That's funny. I did not know that. All right. That's the first time I've heard that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Anthony was uh, on our on the teaching team that I was running at the time uh, during his master's here at Texas State. And um, so I was basic course director teaching all these newbies how to run a classroom <clears throat> and make sure that uh, they didn't embarrass us when they went in there. Um, but <laughs> Also, uh, to you know, really kind of give them the resources to to discover you know a, a skill that a lot of them probably didn't even know they realized they had, or to foster one that uh, they've always been a little interested in to you know let them find their voice a little bit, let them find their their teaching voice and get excited about that and make it their own, and then also hopefully you know I was always glad that you know Anthony was. He believed in communication and what we talked about and what we taught, which is he was just wasn't doing it for the for the paycheck at least or for the degree. There was the letters. There was a, a, yeah, there was a belief there that what we do matters. So I, I do remember that about Anthony. And he was also the student to this day that still holds the record for the longest commute to <laughs> uh, his master's program coming in every week from Waco. So that was that was pretty intense. We were always like what are you doing? Like, and he always came prepared, ready to go. Um, and we had all these other folks that live right here in town that wouldn't be prepared. So I'm like, it was really hard not to be like, well, Anthony's doing it with like a family. 
and a commute. I don't understand why you can't, <laughs> right? But you know, can't really always compare. Uh, people don't always like to be compared to, I guess, uh, to to the to the to best the Anthony's of the, of the world. The Anthony's yeah. of oh my the world, gosh! Right? But yeah, so he's he's one of our favorites. We we were we were fortunate to call him one of ours. Hey, and he's gone on to win teaching awards since. Hey, good. It worked. Uh-huh. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I'm just thoroughly embarrassing you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> just putting you completely on blast. <laughs> ah, normally, normally the way we start these under normal conditions, we ask our guests, okay, how, how did you make your way to the Academy? Like notice how he's strongly pivoting. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. we're not here to talk about <laughs> he's like, nope. how, how, how did you make your, how did you navigate that? to know, okay, this is where I want to be. This is what I'm doing. How, how'd you do that path work? We're talking to Michael Burns, the senior in high school. How, how does that, how'd that, how'd that happen? Yeah. Well, I've had a unique career path as you kind of hinted to. I, though my, my day job is being a, a professor, I, I do a lot of other things. And I'm one of those folks who've always been, you know, involved in a lot of things, have my hands and my feet in different areas because I've always kind of been bored and get bored easily. So this is a way to keep me on my feet. But I also, you know, think like that's the best way you learn is just to put yourself out there, say yes, yes to things and see where you can help out and try different experiences. So if senior in high school, Michael Burns knew that he was going to be a professor, that would probably I would have laughed um, because to be honest, I, I had a lot of teachers in my time as a, in high school that said I wasn't college material, mm-hmm. that I shouldn't go to college. Um, that was kind of a, a lot of feedback I got, um, which it's weird. I don't, I, I don't always quite, it was because I would struggle here and there with math or something like that. It was really strange to be honest. I don't know quite what I was doing. Cause I also graduated with like over a 4.0 wow. and number 10 in the class. Like, mm. I don't know why I wasn't college, mm-hmm. material. <laughs> you mm. know, so it's like a strange kind of dynamic. And, um, you know, so I think a lot of that maybe, and maybe some of it was, I was like, I, I probably functioned out of spite or well, I'll show yeah. you like, uh-huh. here we go. And went to college and, you know, do your thing. And, you know, I've always been interested in communication, but to be honest, I thought I would be a journalist, like a lot of people do who are interested in communication. And I did not get accepted to the journalism program at Ohio University. And I was defaulted into communication studies. And when I got there and started taking these classes, I thought I would eventually just transfer over. And I fell in love with calm and realized, all right, you don't, you, there's a lot of ways to do communication. Um, I don't, I just thought I had to be a broadcaster. I don't have to be a broadcaster, but I do love media. And so then I started looking into ways to how do I work in media and not be a journalist? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause that exists. And that in the comp studies degree really came in handy with that. And so I had a kind of a knack for logistics and organization and, I'm a little bit of a control freak, um, you know, maybe a little little type A in, in regards to that kind of stuff, organized. Anthony probably knows that. I have high standards and expectations and color code things and <laughs> them to do it too. So that's always been kind of who I am. And then still never thought I'd be a professor and uh, interned at the Today Show as an undergrad. And that uh, is where I started kind of looking into more television opportunities. Um, and I was offered a position at the 2006 Winter Olympic Games, which would be a temporary position. And so I thought, well, nobody's going to hire me uh, to just leave to go to the Olympics. So I was like, I'll go to grad school, right? 
why not? Um, and I was very fortunate. I, I, grad school was not something I never wanted. To, I always wanted to do, but I had a, a really good professor that said I should consider it. I was like, really? Me? Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. And it was kind of mm-hmm. like the first time an educator told me I should go to school because usually it was the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then did my master's. And then getting, during grad school, I was able to keep working and doing the Olympics and things and then graduated and started applying for jobs and the reality hit that I am not a, uh, I, I, did, I don't come from an affluent background. So the positions in New York City require a lot of, they, they don't pay you a lot of money, but it requires a lot of money to live there. And mm. I had to turn down my first job, my first job offer at NBC uh, because I couldn't mm. afford it. I literally did the math, could not pay loans. Like there was no way that this was going to work. Like I couldn't do it. And I remember having the conversation with HR, like this is why. And well, there was all there was a million other right. people in line mm-hmm. to take that job. Mm-hmm. They didn't care. And then um, worked in Pittsburgh at a hospital and in the communication um, department. And it was it was fine. I, I didn't love it. Um, I felt sometimes I felt a little icky doing that. Like in terms of some of the like sometimes I felt like a weird little spin doctor mm-hmm. on things when mm-hmm. we would do things wrong. And it was fine. And then I, I remember uh, having a moment of why am I doing this job when I had to plan the birthday party for the pap smear because it was uh, created at that <laughs> hospital so I, I, I planned a birthday party for the pap smear does. Um, so that's a that's, that's a fun fact and I remember being like what am I doing like this is so ridiculous um, and I remember that job required a master's degree it required uh, one like who knew who <laughs> knew that and then like side note on that like I had to get a cake and like the people I was working with, they gave me like a picture of like, like cells. Wow, so like yeah. vagina uh-huh. cells basically. And I had to put it on a cake. No. Did like, you do the yeah, piping it was, or did you ask? <laughs> yeah. And like, I remember walking into the bakery, like here's what they want. And so they, of course they had so many questions. That <laughs> <I didn't answer. laughs> like who is so, this? <laughs> yeah. So there's that part of my life, you know, where that happened. And then I did some cool things there. Like I got to sit in on surgery and write about surgery. I did kind of like that. I was also the um, the like the average white male in most of their commercials for that year. Um, so I appeared in a lot of commercials, which was really kind of funny. And there was one where I was with a woman who was pregnant, but I was not. I didn't even know she was an actress. And so then it, my parents lived near Pittsburgh, and everyone was calling my parents like Michael's <laughs> having a baby, and created quite the rumor mill. Um, uh, there so there was some fun experiences with that but it just I wasn't you know the job I didn't love it and then I actually the reason I got a PhD is I was sitting outside on a bench in Pittsburgh kind of annoyed with my job and some old man was sitting next to me and he started striking up conversation and we were talking and I was telling him what I do and other things I've done and then he I don't know this man he literally said well when was the last time you were happy working mm. I said when I was teaching and when I was at the Olympics he said well quit your job go to the Olympics they're coming up and then go get a PhD. And I was like, yes, wow, stranger. Wow, that's, that's amazing. That's kind of neat. Yeah. So I like literally went upstairs, I emailed my boss at the at the Today Show and said, hey, can I do a second Olympics? Like I'm, I want to transition out of this job and this will be a good opportunity for me to, you know, get some money. And then I'm thinking, and luckily she said, yes, she was one of the best job bosses I've ever had. And, and we talked it through. She actually called me. He's like, are you having like a crisis right now? Is <laughs> this real? And let's talk through it. And then um, got back from, moved from Beijing to Fargo, where I did my PhD and just kept doing the Olympics while I was doing my PhD because they're every couple of years. So I wasn't, I, and I was doing just like some freelance work with NBC. And then, you know, when there was like a natural disaster in Fargo floods, they came up and, you know, worked with, you know, do my thing with Al Roker up in Fargo. Yes. And then 
just kind of kept my foot there wherever they needed it. And then doing, you know, that led me to other like freelance jobs, doing corporate training, things like that. So I've always just been kind of one of those folks that did that and then got the PhD and here I am like teaching, which I do love. And I love, you know, that part of my life, but I, I like, I think that all those other experiences make me a better teacher, better mm-hmm. professor. And then it, it also just kind of, you know, shakes things up a little bit. It's, it, it's fun. And I mean, you all know, it's not like we get rich being professors. So it's nice to have um, a side hustle, you mm-hmm. know, here and there and gets you out of your normal lifestyle. So I, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to kind of find all these different things that I loved and get excited about. And I, I just kind of created my own path. And there's been a lot of pushback of that. I am not tenure track, for example, and I have plenty of people at conferences have told me I'm wasting my degree because I'm not tenure track. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's been some issues with that too, because I'm, I don't necessarily fit the same mold as a lot of faculty um, because I do my publish publications, research and things, but I'm not on a clock and Mm -hmm. I don't want to be right. um, Because if I was tenure track, I don't think I would be able to do the Olympics. I don't think I'd be able to go do these other opportunities because of where the focus would have to be understandably. And, and so that's that has taken a little bit of time um i mean i've been out of my phd now for nine years so that has taken some time for me to stop you know like caring about that part of it but i will say at first that was a little bit of a struggle like it did i why did i do this did i screw this up and should i been so i've always been kind of um i don't i don't did you overlap with jonathan alba anthony no uh-uh. All right. So he was, he was one of my grad students once. And he always said like, you're basically like a professional agitator. Uh. Um, you, agita- you agitate systems and you piss people off and, and you're usually right, you know? So apparently any, you just find a way to make it work. And um, I guess I've kind of always been like that. So that's, that's the kind of long version with some anecdotes here and there about pap smear cakes uh, for you <laughs> in terms of we needed it. my career path. Yeah. Speaking of being a professional agitator and sort of the, you mentioned the publish or perish mentality. We hear that phrase a lot in academia because of its truth. And as a way to sort of push back on that, you came up with co-search. And I I just love for you to explain it to our audience a little bit, um, what it does. And I particularly was like, yes, yes, because I come from a world teaching in political science where if you care about the application of your research you're biased and it's it's wrong and it's bad and I'm like well then why would we be doing it so um, I just really resonated with co-search and I'd love to hear more about it yeah so co-search is a is a startup research competition where we get professors uh, from all over the university from every discipline we can to get together to use their use research to solve real world problems and it's a way that I think academia should be giving back to its community because I really do believe most of the world's problems could be solved if we approached things from interdisciplinary standpoints and actually prioritized and rewarded research that made impact um, rather than uh, in terms of impact of the community rather than impact factors of journals. Um, and I, I do believe that journals can serve a purpose to, you know, get it out there, but who's reading it and where is it going? And mm-hmm. we've created a system where it, those are even locked and expensive mm-hmm. that people don't even have access to or understand it. And it just becomes a way to, to feed ego in terms of academics and also create this kind of elitist, you know, ivory tower mentality that we've 
kind of functioned in for a long time, which then has also resulted in major siloing at every university in the, in the country. And so I think all the time, and when I started as a professor, like, why do we do this? Why, do, why does anyone care about this? And even when I was a PhD student, I was like, well, why, why does this matter, right? So we did this, so now what? What's, now what? And I was lucky, I, I purposely chose a program North Dakota State at the time was a very applied focus and they, they took an action research approach. Uh, they don't anymore, the, the, you know, the people who were there have all retired since I've been there, but uh, that was a big reason why I even chose uh, to go there because it was that type of focus. Because um, I do really think research can make a difference. Um, and I work closely with entrepreneurs and I have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs and I was involved with um, some people heard of like Startup Weekend and. Um, different startup company or uh, competitions. And so I was inspired by those. And I said, why can't we do this with research? Why can't we get folks together? And if we know exactly like the publisher parish idea, let's get them in high functioning groups and teams so they can do research that matters, still do their publication stuff they have to and knock those out so they get tenure. But, you know, let's distribute the, the effort and the work so that, you know, these teams can work on projects that I think matter and have bigger impact, but also lead to publications, which is the, the purpose of a university as well. I get that. That's part of that, that research focus. And so myself and my co-founder, um, Marion Hauser, who Anthony also knows really well, he's a professor here. I went to her, she's a full professor already tenured. And I said, I, I think I need you on my side with this. You're also interested in these things, but you also can say things I can't because you are tenured. <laughs> um, and if you know Marion Hauser and Anthony does, she'll say what is on her mind. So, you know- She's already know committed to being on the podcast. Yeah, so there yeah. you go, right? <laughs> nice. you'll, so, you'll meet her, you'll love her. She's great. Can't wait. Uh, we, went, we went for it and it, it worked and people loved it. And there was all these other un, unintended consequences about- you know, friendships and things getting, uh, you know, people connecting, but then all this other research that came out of it that wasn't part of the research weekend. Um, and so the, what happens during the weekend, I kind of talked more macro there, what we do at the weekend in terms of the competition, um, we get all these professors together, they all come and they pitch an idea and then they we vote on the ideas and we narrow it down to five to seven ideas, depending on how many people are there. And then teams form around those ideas and they they work on it and they create a research proposal and a plan. And then we bring in judges from both the university and community. We open it up to the public and we do a pitch competition and then we choose a winner and those winners get some funding to nice. have their support, their, their research supported. Um, and then we have a party and it's a lot of fun. And, and so it's, it's been a cool thing and we're excited actually right after this, I'm having my first planning meeting with our team to start up co-search for 2021. Um, nice. We didn't do it last year, obviously, because of COVID. And so we're excited to bring it back. And this year, we're going to bring it back with a theme. And this year's theme is going to be a focus on diversity and inclusion issues within communities. And uh, we're going to try to try that. We haven't ever done a theme. I've done it with another university where I've done co-search. We, we did an agriculture theme that went really well. Um, and it really helped, I think, focus things. So we're going to try that out and see how it goes in September. So we're excited to, to be back in hopefully make some impact because what's what's the point of our research if mm. no one's reading it and no one has access to it and it's not changing the world mm -hmm. preach what are some of the projects that have come from those weekends yeah we've had a lot of different ones so we've had um, one of my one of the ones from the first year that are still really going strong is this living mental wellness uh, idea and it was with some theater folks and psychology folks communication folks um, English were all involved and it was really zeroing in on the mental health it, it started out with the mental health of artists particularly but uh, then what we started to realize as these teams were together like athletes are having this experience 
a lot of first generation students are having this experience. And so they really worked to develop this really cool mental wellness program that now they kind of go on the road with that they that this curriculum that allows uh, students and artists and athletes and whoever to really reimagine stress and what stress really is and teaching them a lot of different techniques on how to do that and to live you know more mentally healthy lives um, and that one's been going strong and, and they've, they've done workshops all over the world right so that, that's been really fun we've had a group of marketing and music professors get together to fight the food insecurity problems that a lot of our students have we're a minority uh, serving institution primarily we're hsi and we have are about almost we're over 40 percent first gen and a lot of our students are either first generation americans or their parents are first generation americans and college is expensive for them. So we have discovered there's a major food insecurity problem and a lot of our students are hungry and they're not eating. And so this group of music faculty and marketing professors figured out a way to create a, a food pantry for students um, that is kind of a no judgment zone and get these students fed. And that's been really successful. And we have this program now because of this, that's you know serving our, our students um, in, in the, in, especially during the pandemic. At the start of the pandemic, when they lost jobs and stuff, it would be, you know, the people were really dependent on that, our students were. And so there's a couple. We have, um, we have folks uh, working with the local hospitals um, with throughput in terms of they were having, you know, trouble getting patients through uh, the system and payment and all that. So like, you know, things like throughput was a, a big issue for them. We've had projects about, uh, one of them about training nurses um, and helping specifically LPNs who don't get as much training understand communication and what type of training goes into training LPNs to work better with their patients and understanding what the needs are and, and how that works. So we, there's a variety. And then there's all these ideas that kind of didn't become one of the ones that we're focused on, but still happened, mm -hmm. uh, which has been really cool. Cause it's like, you know what? I heard your pitch. Let's do that after co-search. And that's, that's happening too. So you know, we usually have a, a couple success stories out of each one, not every team, some teams fizzle out and that's fine too. I think about since like I've moved on, like thinking back about what Texas State is and what the basic course is, I, I still marvel at, you know, I guess we started at the same time. Like that was your first semester time. Like we were the first ones that came through under your watch. But when you have a basic course, it's like funding and educating every freshman that comes in and you have a myriad of grad students that are under your watch and you have a bunch of different professors that are teaching these classes. What's, what stands out the most to me was that, I mean, we're all human. I know you liked some people more than other people, but we could never tell. And it's just like, oh, wow. I, I don't have now granted I was only there two times a week, but it wasn't like, oh, yeah, Burns really has. It wasn't like that. I don't like how do you manage that leadership mindset to where it's like, yeah, I, I wrap my arms around all of y'all. I found something to love about all of y'all. Well, you know, it's funny you say that it's my, my leadership perspective has always been kind of functioning from service first. So how do I, I serve these folks, whether I like them or not? And, and what is the larger goal? Uh, and to me, it just comes down to. I have really high expectations and I have the same expectations for every single one of you. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you reach those expectations. And I believe you can, and I'm going to hold you accountable when you don't do it. And I'm going to call you out or ask you like what's going on. And, and I think when your behavior is consistent in that way, whether it is somebody that 
you know, gets on your nerves or not, people notice that. And so to me, you know, coming to work and working with these folks, I, I think leaders who truly believe in the purpose of their product. And for us with the basic course, it's for a lot of these kids, it's the only time they'll ever be exposed to communication. And because mm -hmm. we re truly believe in what we teach and what we research and that relationships matter and communication matters and words matter, that if that, if I, if I truly believe that, then I'm going to, I need to put my effort, you know, into the people who are providing that product to everybody. And so to me, it's an investment, right? So if I invest, if I, a little bit of investment and practice kind of what we teach in relationships, you know, I, I function really relationally with my colleagues and the people I'm in charge of. And that's not necessarily meaning I'm best friends with everybody or anything. It's, but I can be a, a really supportive human being. And so if I can function from, you know, what I always say is like putting the human at the center of things, then I think that will naturally kind of happen. But when I make it about maybe, you know, more worried about numbers and enrollment and all of that, mm -hmm. then you kind of lose focus of really what matters. Because to me, the investment in the human and the time it's spent and the support and feeling supported, they're going to work so much harder for me mm -hmm. if I'm working hard for them. And so that's just kind of always been my, my leadership mentality. And, you know, growing up, you know, my, my family always said, you know, we don't half-ass anything and that includes our relationships. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, you know, full asset, right? Like all, <laughs> um, and so that's what I'm going to do. And I think I've always been that type of person. And, you know, I think I also want to be around people who are all in. And so if I can show you all that I lead, that I'm all in, hopefully, you know, you'll be all in and, and you'll want to um, be part of that mission and that outcome and, and know that you're making an impact. And I think that sometimes leaders lose focus of, of that for a lot of reasons, right? Because in a lot of ways, you got to be a manager too. Mm -hmm. um, and you got to, especially with the basic course, I have state requirements I got to meet. I got assessment BS that I got to do. All of those type of things, like that, that's easy to kind of lose sight of really what matters in, in that, in those instances. So, you know, that's been kind of always my approach is relational. You know, I think there's a lot of value in stopping in your offices to check in for a few minutes. How are you? What's going on? And then e in, it also saves me emails, um, which is helpful too. And <laughs> so I think those little moves make things just kind of function. I, you know, I'm a, a big believer in everyday talk matters. That mundane conversation can serve a big purpose. We lost a lot of that because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we are seeing kind of what, what what's happening because of that. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, reason, you know, I think everybody's kind of over it and missed out on a lot of things because we aren't having those daily conversations and whatnot. So I, you know, I just kind of approach it that way. I, I do it with my runners or my interns. We call them runners at the Olympics. I do the same thing with them try to know everybody's goals so I can assist, help. And then I just would hope that the way you help me back and return and reciprocate is doing doing your job. And we it seems to work. Um, yeah, every yeah. once in a while you get somebody who's a, a little a little annoying here and there. And you know, then you gotta figure out like what's their deal, what's going on, right? And approach it accordingly. But I think with you this case in particular, and I would have to remind even my colleagues in faculty meetings, they're students, they're learning. So we have to remember that, right? These grad students, it's the first time they're teaching, they're learning the process. You know, it's, it's like if you're a doctor and you go through a residency program, this is like a teaching residency program. We have, they're gonna make mistakes. Lucky for us, no one dies. But um, <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. Like we have to teach them through this and we can't expect them to be professionals yet or to be, uh, because they're not. 
Right. So we have to expect there to be mistakes, prepare them as best we can and be available, you know, to a system through that process. And I think that works in any industry, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a dress shirt hanging in my closet still that I refuse to wear when I lecture. Cause it was the first shirt I wore when I lectured at Texas state and I sweated right through it, like the whole thing. <laughs> and I went in the bathroom after I was like, they saw all that. This is nasty. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. But like you would come, we would come in to work sometimes, and you just find these handwritten notes from Dr. Burns. These handwritten notes. I believe in you. You're in the right place. Your students are gonna love you. Aww. You're doing the right things. This is I, I support. And I just you read it. It's like I, I can't throw this away. I still got some of that stuff. Like this. This is real what? life. And, and like me, like me and, and and folks, we'd be like, yeah, nah. I'm not going to be the reason that this man has to have a meeting. Like I'm, it, you, you might have meetings, somebody might drop the ball, but it, I'm not going <laughs> to cause this dude to be burning calories off me. Like that was really where that's, we was at with it. That's hilarious. Uh, you reminded me of The Office. What did, what did Michael Scott say? Like something about like, I want them to fear how much they love yes. me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the full ass leadership model. Yeah. Yes. Maybe, maybe Slap I a TM got something. On that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the next publication. There it is. <laughs> yeah. That's the next acronym. You've got it. It's ready to go. I like it. I like it. You're talking about the basic communication course. And can you explain that for folks that are outside of the comm oh, sure. world? And then also... A lot of faculty sort of want to shy away from that introduction course um, and the big sections of students, but it seems like you've really found it to be an incredibly important class, both for students and for um, student teachers. And then you've also done a lot of research around why that class is so important. So I'd love to hear about sort of how you found that purpose in that class. So the basic communication course, what we say that is basically the fundamental or the intro course, right? It's the survey course that gives everybody a little bit of calm insight, calm skills, right? In some schools, it's only public speaking. Our school, it's a mix of public speaking, interpersonal, small group, and, you know, verbal, nonverbal. We, we give more of like a, a little a little tasting of, of, of a lot of areas of communication. So you'll see that. And, and a lot of schools require it. So Texas State, it is required of every major uh, to take this course because we it's in our general education curriculum and we value it like we value math, right? That this is yeah. an important life skill that we have. And so with us, that course comes in many shapes and sizes. Um, I teach a large 400 person lecture every semester where I have TAs, uh, like Anthony started out as that in the lecture with a faculty member and they got to watch us teach and engage with students. And then they had a breakout lab session where they went and they were in charge of their you know, 30 students in a lab. And that's where they did their speeches. That's where they did activities and skills, uh, skill exercises where they basically took what I lectured on and brought it to life for me. And uh, we also have versions where it's 30 people all year round, right? Cause you know, depending on your learning style or preference, you might want the, the large lecture, you might not. So we, we give some students some variety and about 7,000 students take that class a year at Texas State. So it's it's huge. Um, I mean, we're almost 40,000 students, but when everyone's required to take it, mm-hmm. um, that's the case. We, all, we offer fully online versions of it as well and hybrid versions, you name it. So we, we have found a lot of ways to adapt it to make it work. I'm a big believer in general, general education. And I know I hate, I hear faculty, I hear everybody talk about like, let's get it out of the way, get it out of the way. Well, when you talk about classes that you got to get out of the way, guess what? You treat them like things you got to get out of the way. And there's a lot of value in those life skills come from your history, your math, your philosophy, your science, your calm, your English. Like those are 
basic skills. That's why we call it the basic course that are needed in every aspect of life. And that's for all of gen ed. And also I think gen ed is still one of the, the few areas left at a university that actually embrace what a university is supposed to do in terms of a liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. I, I always say to students, my job is not to get you a job. My job is no. to make you a functioning societal member and yes. a good citizen and to understand ethics and consider pe other people's perspectives. And that's all of our jobs and no matter what the department is. But as universities have shifted to this consumer model of career, 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 job, 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 right? We, we're becoming more like a vocational uh, program in a lot of ways. And that's everyone, right? And that we're trying to tie it to that. And we're losing to me what the core of higher education is supposed to do. And I honestly believe that most students don't value their education. They value the product at the end. So they're kind of doing this checklist education and they aren't actually, they're paying for these classes. And they're not really taking much out of it or seeing the value in it. They just want to see like the grade and then what do I need to move on to the next thing? And I hate that. Um, and even my dissertation, I looked at admissions messages all over the country and found that we don't, and most universities, most of the time is spent on like your lifestyle there and where you're living and the dorms and the rec center and what your, what your day-to-day -day is going to be like and where you're going to eat. And oh yeah, you go to class hmm. right there, setting them up to not prioritize their education. And so it drives me bonkers, right? I can go on like a, a million tangents on this, but I think, you know, gen ed is one of those things that I really believe in because, all right, math, I'm not great at math, but math teaches you problem solving skills. And that is important. And that is important that when you reach a hurdle, you problem solve, you figure it out. It's not about the answer in the end um, all the time. It's about that process. And so like, you know, I really much value those struggles I had through math classes when I took them at whatever age, right? The same thing. For example, you're, you teach political science. Like, yes, we have, they're required to take two political science classes here in the gen ed. And like, hello, like, look what is happening right now. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't we want to take those classes, right? It shouldn't be just poli-sci majors that understand how political science works, right? Like we all should be like functioning citizens and understand and what, what it means to vote and why and what is citizenship and actually know what we're talking about when we are trying to discuss the immigration issue or whatever, it, you know, political issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're terribly divided for a reason, right? So I, I'm a believer in it and I fight for all gen eds all the time and love being on the gen ed committee because I, I believe that that is the core of education is this liberal arts education, why it's so valuable. And it is the bedrock of a functioning society. And it scares me all the time that it gets limited and stripped. And that's the first thing we go after because we're so focused on that. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, that's an awesome challenge, right? So I have an opportunity to have to every day defend my passion, my, my field. What, you know, I chose to nerd out on this forever and go and get a PhD in it. And, you know, PhD is not fun, right? None of that's fun, right? You do it because you love it and you really believe in it. And so every day I get to defend it and explain why it matters. And I have to adapt my message, adapt my audience to my audience, which is something we teach. So I literally get to practice what I preach every day, telling this engineer student that this matters, telling this biology student this matters, telling the business whoever, because they're not all comm majors. And so I think that there's a lot of value in that. And when they see why it matters, you know, hopefully they take that with them and, and they realize that. And, you know, to me, it's a, it's a also not just about what they're going to do with their job, but this class also helps them in, in their personal lives, hopefully, um, in their professional lives and their, uh, you know, love lives, family lives, right? Like that's, that, that's kind of my goal is, kind of same method with my with the research stuff that I talk about, right? 
this shouldn't be, you should never view this as a waste of your money. You should all see how this is going to start impacting you as soon as you walk out of this classroom. And so that's kind of what I think gen ed can do and what our basic course does and kind of our value statements in, in that regard. Large lecture classes. Mm -hmm. I want to say, yeah, 400 C hostile environment, not all <laughs> comm majors. And because I saw you in meetings and because I saw you just day to day in and around in these little in, in interpersonal settings. So I don't think you ever were one of my TAs for a large lecture, were you? No, but I came and watched because okay. people were saying like, yo, you need to see this. And so I go and it's like, okay, I'm going to just be exactly how I am in interpersonal settings in front of 400 people. And it's going to work. It's going to work. I'm going to walk around the lecture hall. I'm not tied to the podium. I'm going right next to people. I'm talking. I'm clicking through the thing. And, and, and right then is when I was like, okay, this stuff works. I don't care how many people are watching. Mm. It, 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 it doesn't matter. If we're talking to one person, 10, 100, 1,000, do the same thing. Just be human. Like, be who you are. And, and, and it's going to be fine. And I was just like, whoa. I remember having discussions with colleagues in, in the program and it's like, man, these guys are giving us the keys. I don't know how much money I'd have made off the basic course. Cause every time I got to teach intro, I'm rolling out Texas State's intro course. Like, like this is like, yep, we don't even need a book for this. Well, and if you start doing uh, trainings and things with corporations, it's always just 1310. It's like your basic stuff <laughs> mm. that you teach. That's the crazy part. I'm like, all right, well, I teach this every day to my college students too, but they don't hold on to it because you probably all took this class at some point. <laughs> mm. mm -hmm. And so when you're in these settings doing team building, what do you find are the deficiencies that come up the most? Yeah, well, you know, here's the thing. I once was told when I was in college about public speaking, you know, just approach it. It's, it's just a conversation with a lot of people. And so I, I really believe that, right? And there's actually a book, I don't even know if it's in print anymore. I remember reading it a long time ago called There's No Such Thing as Public Speaking. And, and it was all about like, just, it's like a conversation, you know, it's a relational thing. And so if it goes back to like relationships, like I said before, and I honestly believe a lot of things go back to that, you know, approach it relationally and, and realistically. And granted, I love, I love a big audience. I love the, the 400 person lecture. Some of my colleagues hate it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I, you know, to me, I get more nervous in a smaller classroom than I do in the large classroom. Like that's just kind of how I function. And so I'm, I'm good in that kind of situation, but I'm, I'm usually a little, little more nervous in, in a smaller classroom where there's plenty that are the opposite. So, you know, I, I love getting in there and doing that, you know, know your strengths, I guess. But when I'm talking about this, you know, I think just a lot of folks don't know you know, when we say it's like back to six, like, you know, basketball, back to basics kind of things. It's the same thing with communication. Uh, it's listening skills. It's just like really self-awareness. It's like having an other oriented mindset because we make so much about us now, um, you know, and social media and all that is a reason for that. We know that. But if we actually put the human, the other human you're in front of at the center of it, just like we talked about the leadership stuff earlier, you know, you're going to approach it differently. You're going to think a little differently. And if you truly try to listen, you know, it, it's simple kind of, usually listening is the biggest, I think, issue for most most organizations I work with. But it's, it's usually like really simple skills with really simple like solutions or things that you can try that, that make the biggest impact because you see it immediately. And, you know, it, it's also tough too to just 
get to get people comfortable enough to admit when they're they're not doing what they should be doing or that you know they may have been a pro have been part of that problem with a conflict or an issue and how they reacted and, and once you kind of get them past that then they're open to it um, but it, you know it just goes into being them where they're at it's again being other oriented and then adapting accordingly and if you can you know adapt on the fly adapt your message and do all that and it takes time and practice great you know public speaking is one of those things though that we teach that people know what that is and so the that's actually the easiest thing because mm -hmm. everyone understands that it's it's those other things that are, you know, what they call soft skills, right? And I hate that word, but like that's what people label them. But it's those skills are the hard; those are hard; those are difficult skills. They, mm -hmm. they are not common sense, and and I think that we're starting to realize that. And I think we're at a point where it's actually easier for me to convince people this stuff matters than ever before, mm -hmm. uh, because. You can't, it, it is, I hear it all the time. I work with a lot of employers. I, I do, I, so I'm no longer the basic course director. I still teach the basic course and I'm highly involved, but I'm the director of career readiness for our department now. And when I'm working with all these employers, you know, it, it comes down to like, we can teach them our software. We cannot teach them how to be good team members, mm. right? That's what we need your help with. And, and that's what they're realizing. So if you can send us folks who already know how to do these things, it's easy for us to teach them our software or our, our process or whatever that is. The hard part is teaching people to <laughs> do basic communication or just interactions or connections. And, and it doesn't, you know, and that's all industries that I, you know, will be working with employers in. Do you ever come against resistance from companies because you're like, the solutions are really simple. It's listening. And they want this big innovative next thing, the big answer. Yeah, it depends, right? So I'm pretty picky about who I'll work with mm -hmm. because I'm busy and I have a job uh, and I'm not, I've never been one to be really motivated by money, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we have those initial conversations, I have no problem saying, you know what, I don't think I'm a match. I, I don't, you know, that's not my, that's not my philosophy. That's not my method. I'm not going to feel comfortable, you know, doing that. Um, because that's not what I believe. And I don't want to get up there and say something that I don't believe. And so I've had those conversations with people and there's sometimes they're like, what? And a lot of times when I say that, they're like, well, what are you? And then when I explain it and what, and they give me the opportunity to explain it, most times they probably, probably 80% of the time, they're like, oh, that does make sense. All right, we're cool. Let's just do what you want to do then. And we trust mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And then there's another the time where it's like more of like the CYA situation. where are like, oh no, we just want like the talking head to come in to say this so we can <laughs> Say like, well, you had a training on this, and you're Checked. fired. You, can do it. you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it's that th that happens, and and I know that's kind of a, a reality, but that's usually, uh, you know, I you you learn to value your time as you get older, and and you know, I want to spend my time doing things that are not just worth things money wise, but also worthwhile for you know my development as well. So it's like, why why am I going to put energy in that BS if if that's all they really want? TEDx. Yeah. What's the story? How did it come about? What do you mean? Like here at Texas State? Yeah, here at Texas State. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I'm one of those folks that think TED, like, you know, there's issues with TED, just like anything, like, but I think in the end, TED made public speaking sexy again. And so I'm grateful for TED for doing that, especially as a public speaking professor, <laughs> you know, but 
I think with, with TEDx, you know, TEDx is the, the local version of the TED conference. And most people now understand what TED is uh, and uh, at least understand, know what a TED talk is or seen a TED talk, I would, I would venture. But there was a time they didn't. But TEDx is just a local version of that. And there's very different things between a TEDx talk and a TED talk, right? So I like to point that out, right? I'm not a TED speaker. I did not get invited to the big TED. I was a TEDx speaker. Um, but what's interesting is TEDx is the kind of, it, it's how TED made their platform accessible, really, uh, for communities. And so these, I was involved with TEDx Fargo when I lived in Fargo. And that's where I did my, my talk, but I helped organize the first TEDx Fargo. I know the, the curator there very well. And so I, I kind of learned about it through that time in Fargo. And when we came to Texas, when I came to Texas State, it used to drive me crazy. Like, you know, why aren't we doing something that gets us more attention or, you know, so people, you know, let's take charge of public speaking at this university and, and TED's a platform to do that. And so I started working with the chair at the time um, and we started brainstorming that idea. I had other things that I, projects I was on. So I agreed to be on the committee and actually it was started technically by another professor who's now gone and in our business college, he used to be here and he's still on the team now too. But and eventually it, it went from him to when he left for business. Um, another colleague of mine, Marsha Bernie took it over and I was still on the committee and then and part of it, and now that she has left the university, um, I'm the I'm the license holder and, and, and like the main person curating it. But always been involved in it, and I think it's just a wonderful platform and um, to give communication kind of a, a focus. Um, but it's also a great way to share ideas. Uh, that's the whole point of TED is ideas worth sharing. And so here we go. Like I think it aligns with a lot of the co-search stuff too. Let's find folks to get them on a stage and get them a platform to get their mm -hmm. idea out there. And it's on a professionally made video and then people all over the world will see it. I mean, even, you know, and I, I have reaped the benefits of my TEDx talk about co-search. I've got a lot of gigs. I, I've done stuff with it at Ohio State. I've done it up at North Dakota State University. I've done it um, with other uh, a university in Brazil. I've done it. Somehow I have a weird following in India all of a sudden. I've been getting contacted by all these Indian universities about they watched the talk and then I looked and I'm like, there's all these comments, but they played it at some kind of meeting or conference. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, and it's been a really cool way to just connect with other like-minded people. And, and and so, you know, I just really believe in in what it's what it stands for and what it does. And it's a creative outlet for us. I, I love the committee that we work with because we find ways to also integrate the fine arts. So at Texas State, we're part of the College of Fine Arts and Communication, which usually communication is not part of the Fine Arts College. And I love mm -hmm. that I am. Mm -hmm. I love that I get to work with colleagues in theater, dance and music and art. Um, and we, we integrate it. And now it's really evolved into a university wide event, which has students involved and we have interns and we get, we do some really cool stuff. And it's just like such a fun way to, to, to showcase what we're capable of doing and what our university is, can do. And I love that it, you know, I think Texas state in a lot of ways, we are a, um, we're under the shadow of a lot of the, like the A&M, UT and tech, and we're a very large institution. And I think we've always been like the scrappy other school. And I, I like that here's a platform for us to say like, you know, we got some you know badass people here that are doing cool things. And San Marcos has got some stuff going on. And, you know, you don't have to be the Dallas, the Houston or Austin to, to be cool, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so again, maybe that's, me functioning back to like my original story of us like yeah let's let's be the underdog let's be scrappy let's let's put it out there so it's super fun i love it i anybody can get a tedx license and with the community and it's it's a lot of work but you can make it as 
large or as small as you want, as grand as you want. Um, it's fun to coach these people. And I always say like, our goal is to help these people give the best talk of their life. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's mm -hmm. what our, how our team functions. And um, it's, it's been incredible. It's been really cool. I've met a lot of really cool people and had a really lot of cool experiences and heard from people who are moved, right? Not even, I'm not even talking about my talk hearing. Like I get so excited when you hear someone like, oh, I was at Ted last year and I, this, when she said this or he said that or whoever. Um, this year's event, even though it was virtual, we had a, a really great turnout and people, you know, we had over 300 people tune in to watch. And, wow. you know, that's a lot for a virtual Zoom event. Yeah. And, and like this year with what, everything was going on in the world, our theme was Amplify. And so we were able to give the stage and a platform to underrepresented voices. And it was really cool to see that these applications we got. And it was like, yes, like, here we go. Like, let's, let's do this. And mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just been like a really fun way to use, use a platform and use a medium that I think that can, you know, make a little bit of an impact and, and change somebody, you know, even if it changes one listener, you know, I tell every speaker, like that's, that's a big deal. Absolutely. So going back a little bit to the basic communication course and some of your research that you've done on that course, I was reading your, your more recent articles. Can you explain a little bit about the, um, the reasoned action model and how applying that to this course basically makes a case for one, the course and in investing and teaching for that course. Yeah, so the reason to action model, my background, a lot of my PhD focused on persuasion. And so that's traditionally seen as a persuasion theory. And essentially what it gets at is that um, our attitudes towards a behavior, our subjective norms, which is essentially your peers and the people you're around um, and your, your basically your self-efficacy, um, your behavioral control, like your belief that you can do the behavior, that's going to influence whether you do it or not, whether you change the behavior or you're engaged. So it's used to help understand how we can create messages to impact people's attitudes, how their peers will, you know, what they'll say about it. And then also that believe that they can do something, they're more likely to change their behavior is the essential thing. It's one of the most studied and published in social psychology. It's not a calm theory, to be honest, we borrow it because we bring in the message element to it. But it's very well known and uh, very predictive. And so to me, what I started to realize a lot of what teach all teaching is, is persuasion, right? That's all we're doing all the time when we're teaching is persuading people what we to have a, a positive attitude about whatever the subject is and whatever we're telling them they should be doing. Um, we want them to, we want their peers, we want the people around them to value it. And what are arguments to help you get your peers to value? It. You want the classroom, you want those are their peers to see the importance of it. I mean, we want them to believe that they can do it. And to me, like, that's pretty much any teaching strategy for most people out there. And so if we approach teaching from a persuasive standpoint, I think we're going to be much more likely to have uh, motivated students and change their motivation and what they see and get them to do the behavior and engage in the behavior. And that's our goal, especially in communication, right? We're teaching them skills to do. So to me, it's like everything's persuasion. So let's, let's function from that standpoint. And so what we have done, what I've done in, in a couple studies with my colleagues with this is we started to, to measure that with our, our students. And we have 7,000 students that take this class a year. So it was a way for us to see if what we're teaching really matters and assess the course in a way that's more practical. Because what that theory allows us to do is to really measure their likelihood to use this later. Now, the tough thing about assessment is we don't follow all these students to know if they're actually using the behaviors, mm -hmm. but what we do know, and if we trust statistics and research, that their likelihood to perform that behavior is the strongest prediction of actually performing the behavior. 
perfect world, we would be able to know if they do it or not and measure that behavior. That's not going to happen with 7,000 students when we know that. Mm -hmm. But if I can provide evidence and data that suggests that there's a high, high likelihood that they will do it because they value it, their peers value it, and they believe they can do it, we, we got to trust research that say they're going to do it. So I, we found it as a much more practical way to justify the reason for our course and that our course is working, which then influences our training, right? So that means I have to train teachers how to teach in a way that they understand, you know, and a lot of this can even be connected to the affective and cognitive and behavioral learning is like this all aligns with what we know about that in terms of attitude and belief in terms of how they behave the, uh, or how they, if they can do the behavior, so on and so forth. So it's important to train it and kind of help them understand the importance of creating a solid message, which is basically an argument for what we're doing and everything that we do. And so, you know, that's why I just, to me, I'm, I'm a core, you know, big believer that all, all communication is persuasion. And so that is why when it's a communicative act like teaching, we should function from an argument standpoint, an argumentation standpoint, and and argue and, and provide a, persu a persuasive reason for it. So uh, we've also done that research with um, our, our teaching model that we have about um, getting students more likely to just talk to us. That model <laughs> works there in terms of training teachers appropriately, how they approach um, the subject of having a conversation with an instructor, their likelihood to come to office hours, their comfort level. Again, it, it, to me, it goes back to that reasoned action model in a lot of ways. I used it in my dissertation. You know, I'm not just like a one trick pony, but <laughs> um, you know, sometimes when you're an academic, when something clicks and you, you know, I get it, I see the world that way. Yep. And, and, but I'm also have to be critical of yep. that there's other ways to see the world too. And I recognize that because then the other side of that is, you know, to me, it's all about narrative. So it's like that and like storytelling and narratives like that to me becomes like the perfect persuasive equation for me is in, in it, I think it's very highly effective. And, and that's kind of like how I stand and approach teaching and, and do that. And it's kind of a way for my research to be more applied as well and, and put it into action to test it out to see if, if there's some benefits from that. And, and I think our, our graduate students have benefited from that too, because we've adjusted a little bit of how we talk and train them um, in the Teaching and Learning Academy. Mm -hmm. I loved reading both of those. And I was thinking about their application to Texas government because... <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, you both laughed, enough said. <laughs> Students come in with some with some certain behaviors about having to take that class. And and I get it. Yeah. So it was you know, it was just inspiring and my my wheels were kind of turning while I was reading that. Well, we forget how important rationale is. And you know, I tell all new teachers, no matter the discipline, like your first day of class is convincing them this matters, no matter what it is. And you need to spend the time on convincing them it matters. You're not gonna convince everyone, but right. with the majority then the latecomers will come along later and, and stuff. If you spend the time to show that you care about it and, and that it matters, like, all right, they're going to feel like, okay, they, if you can at least get them to shake their head and be like, all right, I'll give you a chance. <laughs> that's a win in my book, especially with 19 year olds. Yeah. Truth. Um, I think, yeah. So we met in 2013 and you were heavy with the Twitter. Like you was team burns on the Twitter with, with, with the classes and whatnot. Yeah, Twitter's I, died I, off. Oh, I was going to ask you, like, has it changed? Has your opinion of that medium changed? How has it changed? What What are your thoughts on? I, I got bored with it, to be honest. And I teach a honors class, an honors class called Rehumanizing Communication, where it's all about technology's influence on our relationships and our communication and the world. And it's that class. I've taught it for since 2013. 
it's gotten darker and darker, uh, uh -huh. to be completely honest with you. And it's a lot harder because we're supposed to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of technology. It's a lot harder to find the good. <laughs> and I, I just don't, I'm, not, I'm on social media for different reasons, different ways, but uh, Twitter for some reason has just kind of died off for me. I'll, I'll check it and you know I make sure it's there, but I also found my students have kind of gotten bored with it too. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't use it that much as a teaching tool anymore. And I think at first it was a great way to, for them to feel connected to somebody who teaches 400 people like they were willing to do it. But I don't know if my students are using Twitter the same way as they were in 2013, mm. um, to be honest. And I have not done actual research on this to like argue what the trends are in Twitter. I, you know, that's not my background. But at the time, it, it was a way to to connect and do that. And we still very much do the team burns metaphor and, and I still very much function off that, but, um, and I still put it on there and sometimes people do tweet and sometimes people do, but uh, don't, or they'll put up like a hashtag and Hey, I found this, but my students have kind of stepped out of the Twitter zone. They might still have it just to maybe find news and things, but it's all about TikTok, and I refuse to start TikTok. So mm. same, not doing it. Mm -hmm. I, not doing the dances. I worry about it. I think I read it. We read an article today in my class, my rehumanizing class. I'm teaching it right now this summer. And it's about like the major mental health concerns and problems from these like young influencers on TikTok. And mm -hmm. I'm reading this. I'm like, uh, hello, this is like a perfect storm. Like they're making millions of dollars at 16. Of course, right. it's becoming part of their identity. And when they're not getting as many views and they're feeling trapped, like yeah. how are we not like, yeah, it's like the kids star model yeah. for social media. We we've seen what happens to them. Exactly, time and time again. It's, it's, it's shocking to me, and I just yeah. also am creeped out that there's like a lot of older people, like even though they're not on there, maybe being creepy, but they're still watching sixteen year olds or however old they are when they're doing their da right. dances. And I know that TikTok does a lot of different things now besides just the dances, but there's just something there that feels icky gross i don't know it's like when mark zuckerberg said recently like oh man, we're looking into making instagram for kids you're like what oh. like hey let's put a oh. bunch of underage pictures up there what could go wrong you know oh my what could possibly you know that kind of yeah. stuff so i i'm it was a moment of unity because republicans democrats alike said that's a terrible yes, idea right? so like maybe they, that is that that's yeah. where we we function but yeah so twitter is uh not my go-to anymore um it is phased out, I suppose, but not completely. Like it's there if people want it. Follow me at Doc Burns with his Z. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, oh, that's funny. Okay, no limitations. What problem do you fix through research? Brain drain in rural communities. I am from a rural community. I went to a place where hardly any of us went to college. Um, and I think that so many of our issues politically and the way we view the world, and I, I think to be honest, probably, and, and I guess you could speak better to this to me, you're the, the political scientist here, I believe that probably most Americans are, see eye to eye on most things, we're much more moderate than we tend to think hmm. that we are. And I honestly think that, you know, I, the, what's going on in the Midwest and the flyover states, when that's where I'm from, um, rural communities in Texas, wherever. I think that we are not giving the right opportunities for education for those communities. And I always joke if I had a ton of money to, if I could start up some type of nonprofit or leadership program where I get to go in and help develop young people at those places to 
it doesn't have to be college, right? It's not about sending them to college, but giving them an opportunity mm-hmm. to be exposed to ideas about diversity and inclusion and and ideas of what what is out there and problem solving and, and kind of give them tools to to function and make their communities better and um, not, you know, like my town is one of those towns that when the steel mills closed, it just got worse and worse and drug use and you mm. name it. I, and I think mm-hmm. that education can help with that and leadership development. I think, you know, I, I don't necessarily love the word brain drain, um, but a lot of the thought leaders, when I say that, leave those communities for bigger communities to have bigger opportunities, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so we're losing mm-hmm that to some of these communities and they're not supported and I understand why they feel forgotten. I, I can I can understand that. I can uh, empathize. I'm from one of those places. I tell people all the time I understand some of these arguments, even though if they're not based completely in fact or science or whatever it is, I understand how they develop um, mm-hmm. and I understand how they manifest and I understand why they resonate with these folks. Um, and so I, I try to, that, that, that would be something you know, that, that would be, if I had the resources, I would quit this job immediately if I could go on the road and get in these different communities and set up shop for a common. I, I have access to really smart friends and people that could come in and bring mm-hmm. them in to like, just show them like what else is, is I, don't, I don't even know if what else is out there, just different perspectives and then have them work on projects to better that small town they're from. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that could be really beneficial. And I think it's a way to, to bridge um, some of the divide that we have and some of the, a lot of the, I don't know, hatred and, and a lot of the, the negativity um, and kind of give them an opportunity to, for all of us, an opportunity to connect and understand and kind of, all right, let's, let's actually have some discourse, like positive discourse mm-hmm. and discussion, you know, about, about whatever the topic is and, and provide some understanding, right? Like, that, that, that there's, I, that needs to happen. And um, I'm fortunate that I actually was one of the rare people in my town where both my parents went to college. That's, that was, that was not the, the thing for most people. And so the few of us that did, you know, we got, we got access to a lot of different things. And, and so there's a lot of privilege that comes with education. And so let me, if I can get to them and mm-hmm. let them have some of that privilege um, and give them, you know, that's really all education is. It, it, it gives us a level of privilege that others don't have. And, and it doesn't have to be in form of a college degree. Education come in so many ways. So I think like, why aren't we going to these communities? Cause you know, the whole way education is funded and all of that, like it, it limits them. And I, you know, I'm not convinced that even high, like universities are doing it right anymore. I'm convinced high schools are doing it right anymore. I think, you know, we have a lot of politicians making decisions that um, aren't right for students, aren't right for the humans. Um, maybe they're right for the counting and the checking the boxes, but mm-hmm. um, I think I think that's a problem that needs solved and I would love to find a way to solve it. So, you know, hey, Bill Gates or whoever's a billionaire out <laughs> yeah, there. If, if you're, you're listening, listening, Bill. Come or on. Or good friend, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's, let's make it happen. Find Dr. Burns on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Fun this. Well, when Anthony and I make our first million, we'll come knocking. Yes. Yeah, here, here right, we go. Cool. Yeah. For sure. Cool. sure. Now that's a great answer. Wow. Thank you. Can you tell I've thought about it before? Yeah. It was like <laughs> in the chamber ready to go. You weren't like, oh, like, wow, oh. that stumped me. You're like, okay, here it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get, I get pissed off about things and then I sit and stew on them. So um, that's one that's been stewing for a while. <laughs> yeah. But I like how um, really all of your work comes from like a systems approach. Like the problem are not individuals. We have these systems that aren't working right. for students, right. faculty, humans alike. Yeah, there's structuration theory. There's things there's things put put out here that produce outcomes. Yep. Okay. 
Dr. Michael Burns, what is the quote of the month? Quote of the month? You know, I say it to students all the time. And so it's just kind of been my mantra lately. And I have it on a sign in my office now. Just give a damn. Mm. That's all I need you to do is just give a damn. That's all I need. And if you do that, like, I promise you, it'll, things will get better. Things will work out. You'll solve a problem. You just have to give a damn. And that's all I need you to do for me to, to get something out of this class, something out of co-search, something out of your TED, I don't care, whatever it is, right? Your relationship, this, you just got to give a damn. And so that's been my kind of mantra lately is not, you know, not that profound maybe, or not that many words, but that's what I, I ask everyone to do. Just give a damn. I like it. Word. Yeah. This has been This Is For The CV. Thanks for listening, Mom. This Is For The CV is a Larson and Lestrat production. Editing done by Rebecca Larson. Music performed by Issa Black. Thanks, man.